Hey, this is Field Architecture, a podcast on architecture and the real world. My name is Mark Minkian, and for this episode, my co-hosts are Jordi Clemos. Hello. And Chiara Dorbolo. Hello. Hey, Chiara. Hey, it's, it's nice to have you on, on the podcast. Uh, yeah. as Happy a first to be time. on board. Yeah, because you, uh, you joined us, Field Architecture, about a year and a half ago, I think, um, as a new editor, and um, we're really happy to have you. Um, and we're also happy because you are part of the minority of architects on the team. Um, so, so I was wondering, what, what makes an architect want to join Field Architecture? Hmm. Well, um, I think in a way, probably the reasons are a bit the same that brought you guys to want to do this in the first place. And mm. I think as an architect, it's quite important to be um, curious about the field we're operating in. And I think it's interesting to all, or at least it's good to have the chance to be able to step outside of your role as a professional and just reflect back on what you're doing or what the others are doing mm -hmm. in the field. Yeah, because what, what are like things that you are interested in reflecting on? Yeah, so I, I've always been interested in the politics of architecture or more in general, maybe the... Um, underlying relations behind the built environment in a way mm -hmm. and what what kind of interactions there are with politics and economics and um, uh, what, what are the, in a way, also the social consequences of the built environment and how does it uh, have an impact on the way we, we act as a society. In wow, a way. You, you just gave me the perfect opportunity for a for a segue to uh, to Charlie, uh, because Charlie is in charge of this week's episode, um, right? Talking about uh, politics and um, social implications of architecture. Could you uh, maybe say something about? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. Um, so, I mean, it starts with a, a relatively uh, enjoyable conceit that you know we're we're discussing one of the most infamous architects um, in history, uh, Albert Speer, senior, who was uh, Hitler's favorite architect, uh, was also the Minister of Munitions during the Second World War, was also famous for being the Nazi that said sorry during the Nuremberg trials after the war, yeah. which allowed him to uh, escape execution. And after his 30-year sentence was um, a kind of popular interviewee on the international circuit mm -hmm. explaining the crimes of the Holocaust and conveniently detaching himself from the worst aspects of it. Yeah. And um, the, the idea is to explore the way that the profession in general separates itself from responsibility for wider uh, consequences of, of, of you know, the kind of production side of, of things like, uh, you know, what goes into producing a project. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, in the case of Albert Speer, this is really obviously um, about, you know, um, a, a man who who was um, within the Nuremberg trials. He, the defense that he relied on was that he was operating as a technician who was only really interested in 
the internal operations of the of the um, of the architecture he was mm-hmm. uh, producing, and not really thinking about the workers, uh, the slave labor he was using, and the wider system that he was kind of operating within. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of obviously an extreme example, um, but but within the episode we kind of explore you know, how this dynamic repeats itself again and again, not just in architecture, but in, you know, all sorts of professions. What responsibility do we have to the to the work that we're doing and the wider implications of it? Um, I think, you know, that that's roughly it. Maybe we should just dive in, right? And people yeah. can find out whether you missed anything. All right. Okay. <laughs> In the latest series of hit US TV show The Handmaid's Tale, viewers are introduced to the character Joseph Lawrence, one of the so-called commanders who govern Gilead, the fictional Christian totalitarian state that replaces the United States of America. Commander Lawrence is introduced as the architect of Gilead's economy, but we're almost immediately made aware that he doesn't conform to the commander archetype. He's strange, grave and secretive, He's in possession of banned books and art, and in one of the season's final scenes, he puts on Walking on Broken Glass by Annie Lennox. While watching this jarring scene, I was reminded of a real-life figure whose history surely influenced this character, the architect Albert Speer. Speer himself was the architect of Germany's war economy during the Second World War, revolutionising production processes at a point when the tide was turning against the Nazis. But he was unusual for a Nazi. He was from an upper-class background and had tastes to match. And when he joined the party in 1931, his first work was not as an SA bully boy, but as an architect to top party officials, and he quickly went on to design mass parades, the Nazi HQ, the Reichschancellery, And while the war was going on, he was also set to mastermind Germania, the unrealized redesign of Berlin. Removed from the nitty-gritty of fascist agitation and violence, this relatively clean path to becoming one of the most powerful Nazis conveniently also allowed him to claim, after the war, that he had no knowledge of the Holocaust, although it was later proved that he had. This, along with his decision to accept moral responsibility for his complicity in the crimes of the Nazi regime at the Nuremberg trials, meant he escaped the hangman's noose, while his immediate subordinate, the rather less refined Fritz Saukel, was not so fortunate. As the Nazi who said sorry, Speer became a much sought-after interviewee upon his release from prison and proved a useful rallying symbol for Germans seeking to separate off the Nazi leadership as a bunch of fanatics, disconnected from the rest of the German people. Here he is being interviewed by Ludwig Kennedy for a 1973 BBC programme. The end of the war came and... You saw what had happened in the concentration camps, and you were appalled, and you, and you took, did you not, and you say so in your book very tellingly, uh, you took the guilt of, of Germany upon yourself. Of yes, what? I feel the guilt, and I feel uh, responsibility, and I think that it's a kind of duty to inform other people uh, how it was, and I, I don't run away from discussions with students and young people, if, if I'm asked to, to... Uh, because that's uh, going on. It's of course to me. It's uh, it's uh, 
it's not uh, pleasant to always to be pushed in the past. I would like to be somewhere else and having nothing to do with the past, but it's necessary. Speer's defence relied on the notion that he was removed from the specific crimes against humanity being committed in the war economy he was in charge of, and that while he was aware of the slave labour, it was impossible to know what was going on at a micro level. Here he is again in the same interview. I was uh, thinking as a specialist and not thinking as a human being, and I was so specialised in my job as an architect and other ones that uh, I forgot that uh, uh, humanity is a, is a most important part of life. Why figures like Speer and Commander Lawrence fascinate is because they complicate the idea that these historical moments were the product of a few lunatics. They remind us that seemingly reasonable, even cultured people, can be complicit in an immoral system if their expertise is prized and they're willing to turn a blind eye to the implications of their work. They bring to the present historical moments that might have hitherto been consigned to a less enlightened past, giving people a slight glimpse of what it looks like when an apolitical technical expert gets caught up in a system that is morally problematic. Fortunately, we're still not yet in a scenario which can be likened to Nazi Germany or fictional Gilead. Architects do not yet have to consider whether their work is enabling fascism but there are hints of this scenario in various present-day architectural work. Architects design border walls, prisons, detention centres, and they work in countries whose construction industries see regular violations of human rights and international labour law. And on this note, to help us understand the differences and similarities between then and now, there's a convenient thread that runs from Speer to the present controversy surrounding the Qatar World Cup. Speer's son also named Albert Speer, whose company designed the master plan and several of the stadiums. This story is explored in an article published in The New Yorker in 2017, written by Thomas Rogers, discussing both Speer's trouble contending with the legacy of his father and, after a career trying to define himself against it, the uncomfortable comparisons he faced due to his company's involvement in the Qatar World Cup design. I caught up with Thomas in Berlin, here he is reminding me, before anything else, that the two Speers were very different. There are huge differences between those two men, and um, Albert Speer Sr. was a Nazi who used actively sort of used slave labor, um, kicked out Jews um, out of their houses, demolished their apartments, and sort of indirectly got them sent to extermination camps. And also, later, people later found out actually also knew about the Holocaust and did nothing to stop it and um, is clearly a terrible man. Um, whereas Albert Jr. is, I think, someone who, even if he, in, in a public sense, never would have said this, but I think was trying to atone for the sin of his father in terms of um, really focusing what he did on uh, a kind of, uh, on a, in a sort of moral um, in, a, in a kind of moral uh, idea of what is good and what is bad and I think generally was really trying to do something good and um, I think the idea of sort of complicity between those two men it, it's extremely different <laughs> Before getting to the Qatar World Cup 
I asked Thomas to expand a bit on the relationship between father and son and how it came to bear on Schubert Jr.'s early career. Everything, everything uh, that has been reported about the relationship, including the things that Schubert Jr. has said, um, suggests that it was not a super happy, friendly, lovable, loving family, um, the Schubert's. There's sort of anecdotes that, um, that Schubert Sr. also said is that he was um, allowed, I think, two annual visits, or maybe one annual visit from his family when he was in prison, and that he um, told his biographer, I think, or another inmate that, uh, and they were half an hour long, I think, the visits, and he said that um, they, he, they would always be torture for him because he would run out of things to say after he asked them how they were doing and how they are doing at school, and that he was super sort of cold and very strict, and apparently he... Um, he would, when they were little kids, um, would drive at super high speeds down these really winding mountain roads and purposely to terrify his children. And, uh, and he also, Albert Schubert Jr. also had this anecdote that he had built this sort of minimalist house on a lake um, in Bavaria, I believe, or in southern Germany somewhere, and that he had shown, him, shown it proud, proudly to his father um, after he was released from prison, and, and um, Schubert Sr. just said it was a waste of money. Um, so the family is not super fun. And I know that, that Schubert Jr. did enter his first competitions anonymously, so, he wouldn't, so his name would not um, be public um, or known to the people who were deciding these competitions. Um, he has said that um, one of the reasons that he never got a major commission in Berlin was because of his name, because people didn't want to want the idea of a Albert Speer building anything in Berlin because his father was so clearly associated with this con concept of destruction of the city, of this rebuilding of the city as Germania. And um, I, I mean, I think essentially until the end of his life, Speer Jr. didn't really get any major commissions in Berlin, though there was some, I think at the end, in, in the last year or two, they, he got a commission to help plan a new football stadium. And some people have argued that um, that one of the reasons he, that Speer Jr. worked so much in outside of Europe, including largely the Middle East, was because his lame was less of a less of a burden there than it was within Germany. Though he certainly did a lot of work in Germany as well, and I think uh, potentially also might have had a bigger impact on Germany than on the German cities and German architecture than his father did. Clearly, Speer Jr. was acutely affected by his father's legacy, as is demonstrated by his pursuit of a philosophy which placed heavy emphasis on sustainable development and human-scale architecture. Indeed, it was this philosophy which he used to justify his work outside of Europe, which often took him to countries with poor human rights records. After winning his first foreign commission in Libya in 1968, Schubert conducted much of his earlier work in the Middle East, including Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where he considered his design for the city's diplomatic district one of his favourites. Later on, his company, Schubert & Partner, devised master plans for the Chinese automotive city of Anting, as well as a 3 million population satellite city near Cairo, and Nigeria's new capital of Abuja in which his human-scale approach comes to the fore with satellite downtown areas introduced in order to alleviate congestion problems in the rapidly growing city. While Shabir was willing to work in such places, 
he was always adamant that his company not take on a project simply because the money was there for it. In an interview for Desh Beagle in 2015, he explained that we have to have the feeling that the project makes sense for the country. It has to make sense and it has to be sustainable. There is a logic to this approach. If the project makes sense and remains sustainable, then surely it shouldn't be denied to citizens simply because of the people who rule over them. The problem is that it raises the architectural practice above ideological concerns and disregards the political, historical and economic conditions in which a project is produced. Even the best designed architectural projects must be measured against the conditions which produced them. This fact eventually caught up with Speer Jr. in his company's master plan for the Qatar World Cup. The winner to organise the 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Qatar? There's between one and 50 reasons why that is an awful idea. Summer temperatures in Qatar can reach some 50 degrees Celsius, a difficult environment to hold a professional sporting event outdoors. 50 degrees Celsius is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. You are hosting the World Cup somewhere where soccer cannot physically be played. That's like if the NFL chose to host the Super Bowl in a lake. There are now allegations that some FIFA executives took bribes to put the World Cup in Qatar, and I hope that's true, because otherwise it makes literally no sense. That was John Oliver speaking on Last Week Tonight in 2014, around the time of the Brazil World Cup. While bribery may have been the underlying reason why Qatar won their bid, Speer Jr. and Partners' master plan for the event was cited by FIFA as a significant factor behind their decision. And at least on the face of it, there's a lot to be said for the plan's sustainable credentials. Here's Thomas again, explaining some of its key aspects. The project itself was sort of very, it embodied a lot of the things that Speer Jr. stood for, which that it, it was trying not to be this kind of white elephant architecture that exists purely for these big events and then uh, essentially rots in the middle of nowhere and is super expensive and becomes a burden on country later and is also um, sort of environmentally destructive and sort of the, the, the concept that they came up with was to build all of these stadiums um, that can then later be taken away and rebuilt in other countries, in poor countries that can't afford stadiums, that there would be a kind of environmentally sustainable way of cooling them and that these one of the advantages of building the stadiums so close together in such a tiny country was that the environmental uh, sort of footprint of the World Cup would be much smaller than it was in, for example, Russia, where people had to travel uh, 2,500 kilometers in order to go from one match to the other. And so, I think the if it, in the sense that I think I think he probably viewed that project as a way to to do a big project to to do work um, that that reflected his personal philosophy and the philosophy of his office um, within a country that might be politically problematic, um, but that um, knowing that and um, that he sort of took those problems as a kind of price that would have to be paid um, in order for him to do that work. But again, it wasn't that the master plan wasn't full of positive details, details which were directly responding to previous World Cup projects that were much less sustainable. Rather, 
It was the fundamental premise that a project could happen in such conditions. Sure, Shapir and Partners' work in Saudi Arabia, Libya, China and Nigeria was carried out according to the same formula and few seemed to have a problem with these projects. But the Qatar World Cup was too big a project to escape the media spotlight. And it was under this spotlight that the question of working conditions and human rights in the country came to the forefront. But just how bad are these conditions? And could Shabir have taken steps to explore the situation in Qatar before committing to such a project? To get a better idea of the situation in Qatar, I got in touch with Nicholas McGeehan, who was, until recently, the Bahrain, Qatar and United Arab Emirates researcher at Human Rights Watch, and prior to that, also founded and ran an NGO that campaigned for migrant rights in the Gulf. In terms of what's it like as a country, it's very small, it's hugely wealthy, uh, the wealth comes from liquefied natural gas, um, it sits on, I think, the world's biggest reserves of LNG and technology evolved um, in the last 20 years, which allowed that to be effectively and cheaply drilled and exported. So that's where they got all their money from. Uh, the ruling family are, um, like all the rest of the Gulf states, are drawn from the same family. Um, it's uh, a very tribal society like the other Gulf states. Um, the, the area where I guess it differs slightly from the others is it's always been seen as a bit more tolerant to political Islam. Um, but more tolerant to groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and it's always been seen as a little bit more tolerant media-wise. So Al Jazeera, for example, um, was run by the, the Qataris. Um, and actually, if you look back to the sort of root of the antipathy or the aggression from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, you know, the Arab Emirates, it was really as much as it was about the fact that they didn't like Qatar's tolerance of Islamist groups, it was also the fact that they had this news network that had a habit of um, being quite honest in its reporting, um, which isn't the norm in that part of the world. They're used to newspapers which toe the line, um, which don't do anything that's seen as remotely transgressive. And Al Jazeera was. Um, and I guess these two things um, came together, Al Jazeera and the tolerance of political Islam just after the Arab Spring when Qatar was quite supportive of the groups like the Muslim Brotherhood that were emerging in, in, in Egypt and elsewhere. And the other Gulf monarchs, particularly the UAE and Saudi Arabia, saw these groups as a, as a real existential threat. And that's where the, the split arrived. Um, and that's where we, where we are now. So Qatar is now holding desperately on to the 2022 World Cup. Um, it's difficult, um, the economic blockade has caused them a lot of problems um, and they're aggressed by Saudi Arabia and by the United Arab Emirates who would like to go in and take the place over completely uh, but in the absence of political support for that um, from their Western allies they'll settle for, for basically trying to make sure that Qatar doesn't host the World Cup or has it stripped from. I, I mean it's interesting, I mean you brought it up a few times this like notion of uh like the liberal perception, I'd be interested to know, you know, what, what's the reality behind that? Or, you know, is, is there any sort of um, strength to that image? Or? Yeah, no, I, I'd say it's an image it has been able to project largely through having a ton of money uh, and being able to attract a, a ton of brands who are quite happy to, to take those petrodollars. I mean, it's not liberal, <laughs> of course it's not. Um, it's fairly repressive. Its human rights record is poor, um, whether that's migrant workers, whether that's women's rights, whether that's LGBT rights. Um, 
it's I guess I guess where it differs slightly, it's been slightly more tolerant of free speech in the region than others. Um, but again, it's very relative. Um, I mean, you're talking about a region where, where tweets out of turn result in you being you know whisked off and thrown in jail. That doesn't happen in Qatar, um, which is good. But but nor does it make it a haven for free speech as some people might like to think it is. Um, so it's not quite as repressive as the states around it, um, but um, it's certainly no beacon of liberal politics or progressive um, policies at all. No. In light of this superficial liberal image, I asked Nick what he thought of Speer and Partners' master plan, especially in terms of its sustainable credentials. When you play into a public relations narrative, which is what he's doing, um, and he's playing into the, the one that the Catholics want him to play into, um, then you have to ask yourselves, you know, are you are you given the full picture here? You know, are you really talking about everything that's important here? And all of those things sound fine, you know. I mean, it's great that they're modular. It's great that you don't have to travel far between stadiums. It's great that there's cooling technology, I guess. I mean, um, I mean, there's going to be a lot that's going to have to be said about that. I mean, that's there to protect the, the players and supporters, obviously. Um, but what's he done, for example, you know, if he wants to talk about the full thing and he wants to talk about cooling technology, what's he done, for example, to make sure that people building a stadium aren't building it in the heat of summer when there are extended periods of time when it's unsafe to work? I mean, by extended periods of time, I mean weeks at a time and, and I mean 24 hours a day because of the high humidity levels at night. So what's he done there? You know, how's that sustainable for the workers building that? The reason I think architects get a get off the hook on all of this stuff so often is everyone's very scared of um, planning any responsibility on them for these issues because they don't have any responsibility for these issues. If you take a strictly legalistic approach to this stuff, people who have a responsibility are the contractors and the subcontractors and the client, I you know, person who's paying for the stadium. Architects don't. And people, newspapers, NGOs have all shied away from asking these difficult questions of them, I think because because of this legalistic separation between responsibility and influence. But what a guy like Spear has is influence. And and when he starts talking about all of these amazing things about Qatar and projecting this very positive image of Qatar, I think what's missing and what's problematic about that is that he's missing the other part of the uh, of the jigsaw. And it's a huge part, um, which is you know, not what happens once they're built and once they're finished, but what's actually, you know, how they're being built and how people are being abused in their construction and how his name is being used to sort of promote uh, a World Cup where people will, um, people are going to die making it and, and too many people are going to die making it and people are going to be abused making it. So obviously that there's risks involved in large scale projects and um, of any kind. And, and the vibe I get, I suppose, of, from a lot of architects is, you know, that, you know, they, they've done all they can. Um, you hear it in an interview with uh, Zaha Hadid in, with the BBC, where she sort of says, no, no one died on our, in our stadium project, and, and which is true. Um, I just you are one of your buildings is uh, the uh, uh, Qatar uh, stadium where there have been considerable problems, not least, I mean, the number of deaths. Of there haven't been any problems, actually. I have to put you right. There has done a single problem in the Qatar uh, stadium in Qatar. 
the, more than 1,200 migrant workers have died there. Absolutely not true. We sued somebody for writing that and saying that, and it's, it had to be withdrawn from the press, but it's absolutely inaccurate. Uh, it is very widely reported that there are a huge it's number of... Absolutely unt- no, it's absolutely untrue. What is your understanding of the number of deaths from... There's no deaths on our side whatsoever. There have been no deaths of construction no, workers absolutely on not. The- yeah, you should check your... You should check your uh, you know, information before you say anything. This was a report uh, first published in 2013 by the International Trades Union Confederation. I'm sorry to say it was removed. Uh, I sued someone in the press for it and they had to withdraw and apologise. So there were no... You can categorically state there have been no deaths in the building of your... Yeah, absolutely not. That was Zaha Hadid speaking to Radio 4 in 2015. After a short discussion of another of her proposed projects this time for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, she walks out of the studio, in dramatic enough style that it's worth playing the end of the interview. I know, but listen to me. Let's stop this conversation right now. I don't want to carry on. Thank you very much. Dame Sahar Hadid, thank you for talking to us. Overall, you get this sort of sense of, um, yeah, you know, we've done what we can. And um, I'd be interested to know, you know, like, the extent of the um, violations in sort of terms of labour conditions and, you know, like how much that outweighs their sort of proclamations. Yeah, I mean, you do here sort of have to separate the the Starkitect projects from the ordinary ones, you know. So the the typically conditions are appalling. Um, Migrant workers, construction workers are subjected to horrendous abuses. I mean, the the labour system facilitates forced labour. It doesn't mean that everyone is a slave. It doesn't mean that everyone is in a condition of forced labour. But if an employer wishes to treat a worker like that, he can. You know, passport confiscated, tied to the employer, wages withheld, slum-like conditions. Grim, truly grim, underpinned by this horrendous racial discrimination that you find across the Gulf. Um, You add to that the working conditions, which are um, in those very hot summer months can be life-threatening. And those risks... I mean, if you actually crunch the data, and I and I have, <laughs> uh, it's terrifying. It's terrifying the heat and humidity levels that they're subjected to. It's like throwing people into a toxic sauna, a polluted sauna. And of course they're dying, and the Gulf states don't tell us how they're dying. So overall, the picture is is, is still grim. Um, what happens when you've got people like Zaha Hadid involved, uh, or Frank Gehry, or Jean Nouvel, they're typically involved in these very high-profile projects. And what happens on a project like that is because of the attention that those projects are under, because of the scrutiny and the spotlight, they'll sort of ring fence them with an extra layer of protection. Um, they'll say, OK, so the workers in these projects will be better protected. So we'll make sure that this happens and that this happens and that this happens. Now, it's extra legal. It doesn't apply to the rest of the workforce. It only applies to the workforce on this project um, as a way of sort of circumventing actual labour reform to protect everyone, they say, oh, we'll protect the people on Zaha Hadid's project so she doesn't, you know, feel the heat on this issue. So when they say things like, um, you know, there was no abuse in my project and um, didn't happen here, up to a point, they, there's, a, there's, there's a validity to some of that, you know. Um, but then when you when you scratch it a little bit more, you find that, well, actually, there were abuses on a lot of these projects. There were abuses on Jean Nouvel's project in Abu Dhabi, serious abuses. And when that was put to him when it was opened last year, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, you know, pretended it didn't happen. Um, you know, when I was at Human Rights Watch, I had occasion to speak to a representative of Frank Gehry, someone who worked quite closely with him. 
Um, and, and throughout the conversation, I just got the impression that these guys just want to take what they're told at face value by the people who are paying for these contracts. You know, they're told one thing, they're told that workers are protected, they see a brochure, they hear some positive PR stuff, and I think they, they tend to just walk away from that um, and think, okay, job done. And my conscience is clean and I produced this wonderful piece of art that will stand, uh, you know, stand for the age. Um, it's difficult for me to, to you know, it's a sweeping generalization um, because I haven't spoken to, to, to enough architects to, to, to make that stand up. But I've never seen anyone, um, I've never seen anyone use their influence particularly positively. Um, and that rankles a little bit, given that the, the whole reason you'd get Frank Gehry or, you know, Zahadid or, or whoever, is it's because of the name. That's why that's why they go for them. You know, it's because of the name and the brand, and, and that's all part of the project. Um, so, so for them to then turn around and say, "Oh, I have no influence," is 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 bollocks. You know, it's just, it's totally hypocritical. They they all say it. You know, they say, "What can we do?" Little old little old me. What can I do? And and you're like, "Well, that's why you're there." They they went after you. These people aren't super interested in. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff you're doing, the sort of nuances of your style or whatever, I'm not an architect, I, I, I don't know the, the sort of the, the language to use here, but that's not really why they're there. They're there because, you know, it'll be like, okay, who's the most famous, who's the most expensive architect I can get to build me this project, which is a vanity project. And that's why they're there. Um, so, so that gives them influence and it's that, it's, it's influence they could use effectively and they don't really, they just, you know, they take the money and I think the conclusion you could potentially draw is that the whole system is kind of at fault. You know, you know, and, and it's difficult to know where to stop. I don't know if you have that difficulty. Yeah, I do. I, I really do have that difficulty. When I, I mean, I remember joining. I'd always been very skeptical of these like, co like codes of conduct for for individual projects, and I thought this is this isn't about reform. This isn't. This is about circumventing reform. This is a very sort of neoliberal approach. To, to worker welfare, which is like, no, we're not going to protect everyone, but we'll protect the ones on certain projects. And the way it's, and it's, and everyone buys into it, all the PR guys into it, and the NGOs buy into it. Um, and, and they pitch it as, yeah, it's, you know, it's small steps and it's a blueprint for something better. Um, and actually it's not, it's, it, it's not that. It's about, uh, it's about the sort of corporate uh, management of worker welfare in the absence of state regulation. Um, it's the only way that these massive firms can operate in, a, in, in an area that is completely unethical. Um, so over the years, I think I just became more and more uncomfortable with them because um, I don't think they're actually about solving the problem. I think they're actually about perpetuating the system. And in, in, in many ways, what they do is they, they allow it to continue because they are the PR face uh, of a sort of horrendous, you know, horrendously exploitative labor systems. Um, I mean, if you, if you if you look anywhere, for example, on Abu Dhabi's record on migrant workers' rights, what will come up is a place called Sadiat Island, and that's where the Louvre is. You know, that's Jean Nouvel's architecture, and that's held up as an example of why worker welfare in Abu Dhabi is fantastic. Similarly, in Qatar, when you see st positive stories about what's happening in Qatar, it's all about the World Cup, because those are the workers who are better protected. Um, so they use these um, they use these projects as a way of um, as a way of uh, sort of polishing their image. Um, but now often that, often that doesn't work very well because 
because the problem is so widespread and the problem is so obvious that any journalist who goes in can, can find the reality and the truth, but it fills enough people that, uh, that it can keep going. As you said, it's hard to quantify these things, but I mean, do you have figures or like um, ideas of the extent of the, um, I mean, well, the number of deaths or the... Yeah, yeah. So I spent two years working on worker deaths um, just before I left uh, Human Rights Watch. Um, I looked at everywhere I could to get stats. Um, and, and the shocking thing that's happening, and this is based on stats from 2012, best stats we have are from 2012. And, th- and those weren't for the entire migrant workforce, but they were probably for about 75 to 80% of it. Um, and I believe the stat was that of that year, um, 75% of the migrant worker deaths we knew about were unexplained. And that was 375. Um, so 70, of all the deaths, of all the workers there, 75% were unexplained. Now they're unexplained because they don't do autopsies. So when a worker dies, they just put them in a box and send them home. Um, and I think that's a staggering figure. And it's particularly staggering when you consider that the population's increased 30% since 2012. So let's just do some basic maths. Let's say it's 400 to 385, 2012. Well, 2012, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, there's been six years of that going into the seventh year now. Um, so potentially, and that's unexplained deaths. So potentially you're talking about, what, two and a half thousand unexplained deaths since they got the World Cup. And that's just Qatar. Um, there are more migrant workers in the UAE. There are many more in Saudi Arabia subjected to the same working conditions, the same laws, the same lack of autopsies. Um, so I think if you get the figures on deaths across the region, it would be in the tens of thousands over the last five years, and the vast majority of those would be unexplained. Um, so that's a <laughs> I, I don't I don't quite know how you describe a situation like that, um, but um, but we are, in my view, indisputably talking about tens of thousands of people, mostly young men, um, who've died and whose deaths have not been explained at all and this is just the kind of again the headline aspect of it um you know the flashpoints there's big numbers that you see but like the sort of day-to-day misery i think is is often really you know because it how how can you really it's not it's not easy to report on that and gain people's attention um but it would be good to know a little bit more about the uh, is it called the kafala system um but you know like how like how how miserable can that get, or you know, like what 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 does that mean in sort of a, a, as much as you can explain a day to day, and also a kind of restrictions that it places on people's life. Yeah, kafala kafala is interesting. Kafala, some people use it as a byword for the entire system, um, which is fine. Um, it's not really kafala is the sponsorship system which binds the worker to his employer. It means you can't leave the employer. Um, under any circumstances, and if you do, your your work visa becomes uh, invalid. Um, so on its own, it's ex- very exploitative, it's very abusive, and it's probably one of the worst things. But when you chuck in the other things that that it works in conjunction with, so recruitment fees, you owe two thousand dollars when you arrive, for example, your passport's confiscated, um, you are completely unable to access the courts. For example, there are no trade unions. The um, you know the newspapers don't report properly on on this stuff. So there are a lot of sort of complementary 
and reinforcing control mechanisms. Kafal is at the heart of it. But these are the things that, that combine together to, um, I mean, when I said, you, you know, this facilitates slavery and forced labour, I think that's a legal um, assessment of the situation. That's not, it's not hysteria or exaggeration. I think, you know, if you had this uh, system and of course were, were assessing um, how exploitative it is, that is the conclusion they would arrive at. Um, that's how serious the situation is and, and, and the consequences of that are horrendous on the people who are uh, who work there. Um, they're utterly powerless. Uh, they can be housed in you know, 16 to a room in sewage-infested slums, basically. They can be forced to work 14 hours a day for six or seven days a week and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't leave the employer. They owe too much money. They don't have their passport. You know, all of this combines to, to sort of devastating effect. And of course, it doesn't happen to everybody. Um, but it happens to too many people. Um, I mean, just I'll give you one story, which uh, and this is from the last time I was in Qatar. And I was researching worker deaths. Um, and I was trying to find out what sort of access they had to healthcare. So I went into, just went into one labor camp. It was the first one I went into. Um, pretty horrible, just outside Doha. Um, and I asked if there had any, uh, if any of them had health issues, if any of them had been unable to access healthcare because of a health issue. And they pointed to a guy in the corner who um, very clearly, very visibly um, had a serious health problem. He had a hernia, um, a strangulated hernia. It looked like he had a grapefruit in his shorts. And he'd been carrying concrete slabs up two flights of stairs for the last three months. Um, he didn't go to the hospital because he didn't have money, because he hadn't been paid his wages, and because they didn't have a health card. Um, and, and that was just one, um, it's just one building. Um, you know, you could walk into any building, you might not find a story like that, but you find a story similar. Yeah, and that would kind of happen again and again on like a massive scale. Yeah, but I, I mean, this like I, we, we got him to, we took him to a hospital <laughs> um, to get it assessed and the doctors were appalled, you know, and they said, you need to stop working and you can't do what you're doing. And we drove him home and we told him this and he said, he said, I don't care if I die here, I need the money. This last story really brings home what should, by now, be clear as day. Qatar is not a place that architects should be conducting their business. Squalid living conditions, dreadful health and safety protection, forced labour, often in a climate resembling a toxic sauna, where it's technically impossible to work for weeks at a time. And because of this, deaths possibly reaching as high as the tens of thousands. When you take all this into account, it becomes slightly easier to bring up Speer Senior again. While the comparison is still extreme, there are echoes of Speer Senior's admission that he was thinking as a specialist, rather than as a human being, in Speer Junior's choice to develop an effective, innovative and sustainable World Cup master plan amid such unsustainable conditions for the labourers producing it. Indeed, in both cases dreadful production conditions were obscured precisely by focusing on the technical efficiency of the outcome. But with all that said, I still can't help feeling like the comparison is unfair. After all, what happened to Speer Jr. is not a unique case, and probably in part because of his own history, he stands out for his willingness to engage with the moral issues surrounding his work in Qatar. Here's Thomas again. It, it really does seem like Albert Spread Jr. had 
I mean, he had a he had a, he had Abushpa Jr. had a, had a sort of very long, very successful, very impactful career that um, that I think sort of embodies, I think, some of the kind of post-war German mentality of um, I mean, I, I think the sort of identity that has emerged of Germany as a post-war nation as one that is sort of acutely aware of moral issues and trying to atone for the sins of the past. Um, and uh, But whose sort of blind spot has tended to be uh, sort of questions of ec- economics. Um, uh, and I, mean, I think uh, sort of the area that um, people do tend to take issue with Germany in, in recent decades has been the way that they sort of exploit people economically. And I think in, in some ways that makes Albert Speer Jr. kind of an interesting symbol of what what has happened in, in, in post-war Germany is, is the sort of uh, a, a kind of philosophy of kind of humaneness and of, uh, of sort of conscientiousness and of environmentalism um, combined with a, at, at the same time a kind of capitalist um, uh, sort of uh, aggressiveness um, that that does create problems down the line. I mean, I think uh, certainly trying to take a kind of, in some ways, ridiculous project like a World Cup with so many stadiums and something like 112 training grounds that have to be built for something that lasts a few weeks and I think is by any standards, it's an utterly ridiculous event, um, and trying to turn that into something that is not a huge burden for um, not only for the wealthy backers of, of, of this project, the sort of Qatari royal family, but for regular people and for uh, sort, of on, sort of people in other countries, that the, this idea that they can, these, these uh, kinds of buildings can be sent elsewhere and help other people, I think is a sort of sign that he had a lot on his mind and he was trying his best. Um, yeah, it, it, he could have maybe done better in some respects, but I, I don't know if I'm really in a position to judge. I and mean, I think clearly there are less stupid projects than World Cup yeah. bids. Um, but he did a lot of projects that were like, uh, that were very sort of based on improving the lives of people in cities elsewhere that weren't, you know, as stupid as a World Cup. So... And there's a very good chance that had he not taken that project, someone else would have done it and they would have made it even stupider. Very likely, in fact. So, um, so yeah, so sort of basing his leg or sort of measuring his legacy based on this one really dumb project is less, or this not, I mean, his, his sort of idea for the project was not dumb, but just like World Cups are intrinsically stupid. It's a problem with like every single major sporting event, it seems like, just like constantly there's controversy. Like, like what happened in Brazil, for example. The vast Amazon rainforest, an extraordinary wealth of plants and animals hidden in its trees, as well as the city of Manaus, which has its own treasure. They call it the Arena da Amazonia, a $300 million stadium built for the last World Cup. And now, no one knows exactly what to do with it. Inside, 4th Division side Nacional play a home game to what, for them, is a big crowd. Occasionally, there's an evangelical concert. That was a clip from a 2016 Al Jazeera report into the legacy of the 2014 Brazil World Cup. I mean, these projects are sort of... I'm, I'm not a football fan, and, uh, and uh, 
Uh, and I, I, I also think Olympics are just kind of dumb. And so, I th I, and things like the sort of expo, he also designed the grounds for the expo in Hanover. I forget what year that was in. It was also clearly like kind of dumb. But um, I mean, I think the, the question in, in some respects with Speer, Albert Speer Jr. Is, is sort of, do we hold him to a higher standard because of his father? It's not, it, it's, it's because how many architects or large architecture firms, and you probably know the answer to this better than I do, work in sort of politically questionable regimes. Um, I, 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 from what I understand, it's the vast majority of them do um, in uh, Arab states where human rights records are really problematic. Or um, one of the architects of the firm, of Albert Speer Jr.'s firm, in an interview with Der Spiegel, the interviewer was, was, was trying to sort of pin them down on terms of working on a, on a, in a, that they were working in Saudi Arabia in a place where there's the death penalty and people are um, punished without human rights. And then, and the architect says, oh, you mean because we work in the United States? Um, that, it's a real gotcha, man. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's, it's very fair. Um, so the question is, do, um, do we, ex does one expect Albert Speer Jr. to, um, operate on a different level than everyone else simply because of his genetic heritage. Um, and I'm not sure what the answer is to that question. I, would, I mean, I think uh, he clearly has moved or attempted to, to within the, the sort of structures of global capitalism and the ways that um, sort of architecture, high-end architecture works, seems like he has been trying to do his best to to operate in a moral way, I think. The, but the sort of bigger question is: do, Does the sort of global capitalism, the way that money works, in 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 uh, in that sense, does it does it require a kind of moral compromise already, anyways? And I think the answer is probably yes. Um, but how does a large architecture firm get out of that system? It's yeah. probably not actually possible if it's still trying to survive, essentially. As Thomas suggests here, compared to the period in which Albert Speer Sr. was working, architects, planners, and other technical professionals in many ways now face an even trickier job navigating the moral maze of responsibility that comes with the production side of their work. However, this is letting them off the hook somewhat. Working within the system doesn't mean you have to work with the system. Architects like Speer Jr., Zaha Hadid, and while we're at it, Norman Foster, whose company also produced a stadium for the World Cup, fell well short of working within and against the system by working in Qatar. This all comes back to Nick's point about architects having influence, which he returned to at the end of our conversation. Uh, it goes back to, it's this division between responsibility and influence. No, 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 you don't have responsibility. Um... You know, you're not, it's not your job to fix Qatar's labour system. But at the same time, you can sort of take a look at yourself and go, well, does my voice count here? Is what I could say, would what I could say make a difference here? And yeah, it would, you know, it absolutely would if people, if architects as a whole stood up and said something about, about what they expected from the projects that they worked on. It would. Um, and they don't that I've seen. Um, so that for me is the most disappointing aspect 
of it. And you don't expect it from construction firms because construction firms are, are what they are, you know, they're there to make money. Um, but architects um, are supposed to uh, supposed to be something different, I guess. Yeah, there's a sort of higher calling, I suppose, that you kind of get in the education of it, and or the young young architect kind of going into it has this sort of notion of the world that's like slightly more morally driven. Yeah, exactly. So writers and you know writers and poets going off to literary festivals in Dubai, you know, you're like, well, <laughs> um, okay, but. Uh, do you not come from a place that, that there are certain values that, that you think should be promoted in a place? And are you actually assisting um, not to sort of open up creative spaces and thought, but in, in, in countries where those things are being closed down and, and you're part of the PR machine that, that makes that happen? I think it's less obvious in the case of architects, to be honest, but, uh, but I, you'd hope it's something they would think about. Great episode, Charlie. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Pleasure. Um, I mean, it brings up so much questions and so so much um, like topics to explore further. But um, for now, I was, I was wondering, Chiara. Um, I mean, you're an architect, and not. <laughs> I don't want to put all of this on your shoulders just because you're the only architect. Um, <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> here, but. Um, how do you how do you feel about this or think about this? Um, like, what can you do as an architect in this in this um, big like in the context of um, you know responsibility for the world for for others? I I think that in a way it's it's really difficult because if you want to work as an architect, you still have to work within the system, you have to work within the current conditions. And um, it, it's really hard to escape them, especially nowadays, I think. Yeah. And um, I guess uh, it's probably a really good point that especially architects that are quite famous and have some sort of influence um should be able to do something or or maybe to do more than what they are actually doing right now. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, it's quite, I think it's quite irrealistic to ask to common architects that just to, you know, just need to make a living out of their profession to to make a case about each project they would be working on. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah, so you need like a wider movement for that. I guess so. I guess so. And yeah. you need architects who already have an influence and some sort of um, roles of power in yeah. a way they should be able to lead the way and to um, yeah. start a movement maybe. And this is the really tricky thing, right, is that um, it reminds me of a... a famous interview between Andrew Marr and Noam Chomsky, where um, he's kind of asking Noam Chomsky, like, how how am I being controlled by the, the like, the elite, the establishment? And Noam Chomsky says, you're not, you know, the, the point is not that you're being controlled, but that the fact that you're sitting where you are is, is because um, you are, you have shown yourself to be someone who will not rock the boat, who will not change the status quo, who will not mm -hmm. challenge the underlying premise 
within which you work or the uh, underlying kind of structures, right? Mm. And that's the problem with it's like the big architects, I suppose, isn't it? Is that like the fact that they're there means that they're not going to rock the boat. So that's the like really. So we tricky shouldn't thing. expect anything of them. I don't believe so. No, they're 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 in a position. I mean, they, as Nick says in the episode, you know, they do have influence. And the fact that he's seen no action on the part of any of these architects that that like shows any kind of meaningful desire to change the system, you know, suggests that that you know. Um, I, I think actually that they, they're not they're not going to change yeah. of their own volition, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, and I, I recently learned of the Indian architect PK Das. I don't know if you you know him. No. Um, okay. He. Um, that's a guy who does like villas for the wealthy, but he's also an activist for housing rights and proper housing for uh, for the many. Um, so. You know, he funds his activism by doing um, shiny buildings and yeah, beautiful, beautiful houses. Um, so, I mean, it's not the one or the other, is it? No, but um, probably that's a different thing. Because I think there are a lot of architects that are doing quite some good work, which is usually not paid, like research, for example, and yeah. they fund it with profits coming from, you know, all sorts of uh, expensive buildings or, but I think that um, being able to say, no, I'm not gonna take this project because I don't want to support the system or the government of a certain country is quite a luxury nowadays. And yeah, because Kiara, you you like um, recently you you mentioned um, a uh, a chapter from a book by uh, yes. Ramir de Graaf, who yeah. we also interviewed um, for the website. It was a, I think the article is called uh, "Architecture is in a State of Denial," and it's a it's a quote uh, yeah. by him. Um, he's a partner at the office of uh, OMA, by the way. Yeah. For just to, just to be clear. Um, what did you what did you what did you read in that book? Yeah, so there's this really funny chapter which is called "A Benevolent Dictator with Taste," and I it's um it's basically the text is a collage of I think um, about twenty uh, quotes and and declarations from architects talking about their thoughts on actually working in countries where they with which they don't share like uh, dictatorships yeah like like regimes and this sort of uh Mm -hmm. situations and and it's really nice because uh the the point that he proves with this collage is that star architects sort of have the same response to this in a way and the response is it would be nice to work for um a benevolent dictator, but he needs to have good taste. So that's what it all. Uh, yeah, it's that's all about what the it's image. all about. Yeah, the, the image and the aesthetics, and you know, yeah. being able to actually do whatever you feel uh, it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think it's he uses quotes by um, his partner Adam Kohas, yeah. but also Frank Gehry, Frank Gehry, Lipskin, and uh, Zadid, yeah, Nouvelle. yeah. So that's really interesting. I mean, it is also, I mean, he is also he also works in his in his he's also part of the system in a way. Yeah. 
So you can also see it's just uh, write a chapter like this and then be done with the topic, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's also good in a way to be able to um, reflect on this subject, even yeah. if you're, you're, I mean, I guess in your daily practice, you're as much part of the system yeah. as anyone else. But the fact that you're putting out there some sort of critical reflection on this, it's already something. Yeah, no, I agree for sure. And, and I don't, I know that not everybody agrees, but I, mm -hmm. I think the book is, um, is really good. It gives you a really yeah. great insight in, yeah. to what it is like working for a big firm and uh, like the, uh, the trade-offs that you have to make. Um, But so, I mean, presumably the chapter is basically, I mean, as you say, it's sort of saying so long as like the the project is like nice and looks good and <laughs> stylish and, and solid yeah. and, and it, you know, maybe is efficient or sustainable or really basically corresponds to the architect's taste. If the client is allowing that to happen, then, then there mm -hmm. really is no concern for the, like, so, the, so long as the image at the end is, is uh, you know, tip top. Uh, yeah. th then, then we really needn't concern ourselves with the wider political system that that is uh, within which it's being produced. And exactly. I mean, this is like the yeah. I mean, this is the question of the podcast, and it's like such a cop out, isn't it? I mean, like the that like that it happens again and again and again is like yeah. It's 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 saying like yeah, you know, um, yeah. it's just important to produce an image at the end. Yeah, yeah, and I also think that. Um, this is something we don't talk about enough in a way, this, this fact that actually working for or in countries that have dictatorship, for example, is, is basically supporting their system. It's not something, because usually we, we talk about the fact that um, architects should refuse to build walls, for example, or prisons, mm -hmm. but we don't really talk about all the other I mean it's not just the program that has an influence on what you're building out there there like there's so many different aspects and mm -hmm. I think the podcast is really good because it touches upon different aspects of how the built environment is uh, influencing yeah I mean it's just like with that, like like the conclusion of, of the thing can be the conclusion here is just it's like a It's difficult and, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, it, it would be exhausting for, for like one person to kind of burden themselves with the responsibility for the entire kind of system. But, you know, it's just a case of, you know, thinking and being aware and, you know, like really trying to like understand as much as possible what can you do, you know, like within the space of time you have. Um, I do think it is actually incumbent upon the, the sort of... Um, the less kind of um, co-opted, um, maybe the, the people that indeed do have less power at the moment, the kind of common architects, um, to begin actually kind of organizing themselves. So, I mean, this is something I'm inclined to sort of advocate for everything. And it's, you know, maybe a bit easy, yeah. but like, you know, organize. To, yeah, you know, literally organized, right? Like, and mm -hmm. I think this is something that, uh, you know, we're interested in exploring in the future yeah, for sure. as, as, a, as a platform, you know, gi given our relative independence is to actually start, you know, really like agitating, you know, there's a lot of architects listening to this, I'd imagine. Say, you know, like what, what is being done to actually, you know, um, 
organize yourselves, unionize and and start actually like putting pressure on your bosses. Because you know, the thing is that that power that bosses have over 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 someone who's not only doing what they love, but you know, being paid to do it, um, you know, it, it really stifles stifles like a, a challenge. And I think that that's that's lacking. I think that needs to be kind of addressed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And maybe another way to uh, um, to end this episode is to talk about the uh, support campaign that we recently started. Um, because um, we are calling on people to give us a little bit of money so that we can survive and do more of what we are doing right now. So the articles on the website, the podcast that you are currently listening to, um, and um, much more in the future. So please go to fieldarchitecture.com slash donate and uh, help us out. 